Thank you, Alan. And my apologies to those who are zooming in, uh, who expected to see Alan today. I am not as tall as Alan. I am not as handsome as Alan. And I am not as old as Alan. <laughs> Actually, Alan and I are 12 days apart, born in the same year. So I truly have an older brother. And uh, since he was born on March the 8th, and today, it's if you add 12, Alan's the math guy, uh, today is March the 20th, and it is my birthday. So I would hope you would allow me a few extra birthday minutes as we, so bring, I hope you brought your lunch. So, uh, <laughs> and dinner. Uh, but uh, in all seriousness, as we begin this new book, the book of Nehemiah, I was, uh, I have to tell you, I was pleasantly surprised because it's not a book that we cover too often. Every now and then we do get to it. And, uh, but I will say this in, in, in preparing, I, I found that Nehemiah, you know, he may not be the first person that you would think of to, to, to want to study in the book of in the, any of the books of the Bible or, um, you know, others may come to mind, but I have to tell you, um, he's truly worth our attention. And um, an entire Old Testament book is named for him and uh, dedicated to who he was and what he accomplished for the Lord. So uh, with that said, um, I hope over the next several weeks, you uh, truly get to know uh, Nehemiah and who he was. Uh, just a brief overview of the book, uh, and that is um, this. And uh, Dan, if you could maybe just throw a couple of the first slide up there for the people at home. Um, and that is that his name means uh, Yahweh comforts or comforted by God. And uh, maybe you can turn to the next one. There he is uh, building, and we'll get to that in a second. Um, and that is... Uh, he, as far as the author is concerned, most scholars believe it's Nehemiah. I did find in my research that some believe Ezra may have copied Nehemiah's journals, taken some of his letters, his decrees, his uh, registers, and wrote a first-person account, but I, I tend to believe it, it's, it's Nehemiah. Uh, the date of the writing is the 5th century BC, somewhere around 430 BC. Uh, as far as the theme, it's rebuilding the walls of, Jer of Jerusalem. But I'd like us to keep two things in mind today uh, as we go throughout, and I'll try to survey the three chapters in, uh, you know, an hour and 10 minutes. Um, that God can do anything to anyone, especially those who have a heart for God, for God's people, and for the things of God. And also, God wants to rebuild and repair the walls in our lives. And uh, I, I look at a couple of comparisons between Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, first, for Ezra centered, is centered around the rebuilding of the temple and the restoring of the Jewish people into a right relationship with God, and also the purification of the people. Nehemiah deals with rebuilding the walls and the protection of the people of, of Jerusalem. Ezra focused on the religious aspect of the return of the Jews. Nehemiah, at least the first part of the book, deals with the political aspects and daily life. And Ezra, of course, we know was a priest. Nehemiah is not a priest. He's a layman. As a matter of fact, he was a cupbearer for King Artaxerxes. So here's one person uh, dealing mostly with the religious aspect of things, and that's Ezra and Nehemiah dealing with the uh, more political, if you will, the daily life of things. Um, our brother uh, Mark Colchin gave a uh, little historical background when he was talking last week, and I'd like to do that to kind of set the stage of where we are. Uh, if you remember, Israel was conquered by the Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar, about 586 BC, and then they were conquered by the Persians under King Cyrus. Uh, that was around 539 BC, and then a couple of years later, Zerubbabel is the first uh, to lead the exiles uh, out of captivity and into Jerusalem. That's roughly about 537 BC. About 50,000 came with him, too. And he helped supervise the rebuilding of the temple, and it was actually brought, at one point it was stopped, and only the foundation was there. And it was after a 17-year de uh, delay that King Darius, uh, or Darius, depending on your pronunciation, there's actually three. Uh, the next king, he gave permission for Zerubbabel to continue, and the temple was actually um, completed within three and a half years, and was completed in 516 B.C., 
So then we get to 80 years later, if you will, or some from the first exile, and uh, Ezra leads a second contingent of, of the Jewish remnant into Jerusalem. And, who, and of course, we know from the book of Ezra, he brought a lot of reforms. Um, the people there, the, the Jews, were, re, uh, were finally turning back to God, uh, stopping some of the things that got them there in the first place, the intermarrying with uh, pagan uh pagans from other nations and things of that nature. And, um, but one thing is, is, is certain, uh, unfortunately, is that the, the walls are down in Jerusalem. And that's where Ezra comes, uh, and Nehemiah comes in, because he enters Jerusalem to rebuild those walls in and around 445 BC. Now, here's the question I had is, you know, why Nehemiah? I mean, of all the people that were there, and there was, you know, many remnant there, uh, why was Nehemiah chosen? He wasn't even there. He, he, he wasn't even born there. And um, he never set foot in Jerusalem. And why was it? And, you know, I'm starting to think of the characteristics as you go through the book of Nehemiah and some of the things of what, why, why, why did God choose him? Well, he's truly a man of God. He has a passion for, for, he has a passion for God's work. He was patriotic. He loved his brethren in the city of Jerusalem. He, um, he was a man of prayer. There's 11 examples of him engaged in prayer throughout this book. He's a man of courage. You'll see throughout this book uh, some of those instances where courage was needed. He's got all the qualities of what a leader is, and certainly the qualities of a leader who is a man of God. He's unselfish. He's pious. He's humble. He's steadfast. Um, he has integrity, and he certainly he's honest. He's also a man of action. He wore a lot of hats. Um, those of you who are um, in charge of uh, supervising people, I was a former principal. I had to wear a lot of hats in when I was a principal, you know, an instructional leader one day and at one hour and the next hour I'm a disciplinarian, if you will. Then I was a counselor and then I was, you know, involved in, um, let's say, uh, human resources, if you will. I mean, there's a lot of different things that go on. And he was that kind of a person in a sense. He was a man of action, though, a complete man of action who uh, balances spiritual life with the work life. William McDonald had this quote, and I thought it was a great quote about Nehemiah. He says, there are three kinds of people in the world. Those who don't know what's, going, what's happening, those who watch what's happening, and those who make things happen. Nehemiah was a man of action. He made things happen. You know, back in my old neighborhood, when it came to playing sports and things of that nature, we would always say, you know, if, if, a, if a man uh, or a guy was uh, playing in the uh, he was kind of bragging about himself. One of us would always turn and say, you know, that guy's all talk, no action. You know, that guy's all talk, no action. But uh, Mike Delapo, he's laughing because he's from kind of the same neighborhood. And, uh, but that's not Nehemiah. He is a man of action. And uh, we'll see that throughout, throughout the book. Um, if we could, let's read the first two chapters. I don't know if we're going to get through the, to the third chapter. Uh, I apologize for that because of the time. You know, unless you want to stay a while, uh, I'm glad to uh, to do that. Um, Arminda's giving me the look already. By the way, we're getting along okay. Even though I sat there and she's sitting there, we, we're getting along just fine. So, But here's the word of the Lord uh, from Nehemiah, chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who, are, who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you, day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, the decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. 
But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if you ex- exile people, um, you even even if your exile people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? And then I prayed to to the God of heaven. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that I will provide so they will provide me safety, uh, safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates and I gave them the king's letters and the king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. Then Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this. They were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. So I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men, and I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts. Uh, with me, except the one I was riding on. And by night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down in its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. And then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up with the valley and went up the valley by night, examining the wall. I finally turned back and re-entered through the valley gate Officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because I, as yet, I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any others who would be doing the work. And then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about this, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We are his servants. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to do it. Let's uh, let's go spam prayer. Our God and Father, again, we just thank you for your word, for thy word is truth. Uh, Help us to understand uh, these words today and uh, give us insight into uh, what you will have us learn and apply it to our very lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, get to the first part of this, and we don't know much about um, Nehemiah's genealogy other than the fact that he's the son of uh, Hakaliah. We know it's the month of Kislev. Kislev is somewhere between mid-November and mid-December, and we know it's the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes. 
Nehemiah is in Susa, in the, in the citadel. Uh, he's there because he's the cupbearer for the king. Susa is located somewhere, um, I would say, about 250 miles east of Babylon. It's 900 miles away from Jerusalem. It's somewhere located in between where present-day Iraq and Iran may be. So that'll give you an idea in your head if you can see that. I think I had a map, but uh, you can't see that. Um, uh, Dan, I'm not sure if that map would help the people who are uh, zooming in at home. Um, If you can kind of, yeah, that's good right there, just to give you an idea. Uh, you know what? Let's go back to the other one. And and but but that that is um that is where he's located. Uh, why are they there? It's kind of a winter haven for the uh, for the royal family. It's the headquarters that they choose during winter months because the weather is favorable and it's kind of tropical there. And um, Hanani, of course, his brother comes back from Judah, and he has some questions. And I think this is more than small talk. It's more than just, you know, you're back. Oh, you're, you're in Florida. Oh, you're back. You know, how's everything in Florida? You don't know. No, it wasn't kind of thing. I think it would be more something like if George and when George and Donna used to come back from where we talked to him, talked to them about Turkey, he would say, you know, what are the saints doing in Turkey? How are things in Turkey? And you're worried about them because of the, you know, how volatile and, uh, you know, King, King. President Erdogan, what may be with the with the with Christians there. It's kind of that kind of a talk, and then basically what he's asking for, you know, he's asking for how the, how the the remnant is and how things are in Jerusalem. He's really looking for a progress report, and um, you know, sometimes you should never ask a question unless you know the answer to it. This is what happened. He got the answer, and it probably wasn't the answer he was looking for. The people who survived the exile are in great distress. The uh, uh, once mighty people are most miserable people. And to add insult to injury, the wall is down Jerusalem, the gates are burned to the ground. And, um, you know, this, this is distressing news for Nehemiah because the walls and the gates of Jerusalem were both spiritually and practically important um, to the Jews. And when you think about it, practically, because it provided protection from foreign invaders, other countries trying to uh, take over that area. Uh, vandals may come in at that time and upset the city of Jerusalem. Even animals who may wander into the city, um, uninvited, if you will. Um, I found a quote from the Jewish historian Josephus. Maybe this will give you kind of an idea why the walls were needed. It said that the neighboring nations did a great deal of mischief to the Jews. While in the daytime, they overran the country and pillaged it. And in the night, did the mischief insomuch that not a few were led away captive out of the country and out of Jerusalem itself, and that the roads were in the daytime found full of dead men. So to give you an idea of how violent that was, Isaiah 60, verse 18, says the following. um, Violence shall no more be heard in thy land, wasting no destruction within thy borders. But thou shalt call thy walls of Jerusalem salvation and thy gates praise. But Jerusalem is quite miserable at this time, and um, it's in shame. It's in disgrace. It's in reproach. There wasn't much salvation going on. I'm sure there wasn't much to praise about there. And um, I, I, I wanted to say this, and I don't want to get too much involved, and it's probably the way some of our own cities are in our own country and throughout the world. Uh, people are in misery and disgrace, and, uh, and you know, sin does that because sin is full of deceit. It promises things. It doesn't deliver. In its wake, there's nothing but destruction and devastation in the lives of the people that live there. So now we're talking about Nehemiah. Nehemiah never sets foot in Jerusalem. He doesn't, wasn't born in Jerusalem. He was born in Babylon to parents who were exiled to, uh, to Babylon, taken in captivity. He, did, didn't, he never knew what it was like to live in freedom. And of course, um, he, he's, but he feels a deep connection to the people and to the remnant there and to his bro- his brethren, um, even though he didn't experience the hardships that are there and the misery and disgrace that they were going through, perhaps a frame of reference. And Dan, you could take down that for the people at home, perhaps the, the, a frame of reference um, to understand how he may have felt. And uh, Alan brought it up in his prayer. 
you know, for Ukrainian Americans who were born in the United States, who never set foot in Ukraine, um, they identify with the with the with the Ukraine and the Ukrainians who are there. They feel a connection. Um, they see the death and destruction. We watch it on TV every night, and it's it's distressing. There's probably distant and close relatives who are there that they know, business associates, friends. They're horrified at what they're seeing. They're worried about the safety and welfare of the Ukrainians, and they're certainly uh, concerned about the uh, safety and welfare of the homeland. Um, they see the rubble. They see the ruins, much torn down. So you can understand how Nehemiah would identify with those he's never seen and in a land he's never been to. He's concerned about the Jewish remnant. And um, as cupbearer for King Artaxerxes, here's the thing. I don't know if Nehemiah was ever in distress too much uh, or if life wasn't terrible for him because he was a cupbearer and he was around royalty every day. He worked in the palace. Right. Um, I, I, I would, you know, it's a very important position as a cupbearer because he's the first line of defense to that king, if you will, uh, or maybe the last line, because he had to taste the food and taste the wine before the king got it and re received it. But he's more than that to the king because he's more of a confidant now, based on the fact that um, he's built some integrity. The king sees how honest and how trustworthy he is. And yet, his life in, in, I would say, there in the palace is going to change automatically because of what the news he got in Jerusalem. And he would go from the king's cupbearer, as one writer said, to the Lord's burden bearer. Look at his reaction in verse 4. You see that, you know, this good life that he had is now a grief-stricken life. He's heartbroken. And he does five things here. He sits down when he receives the news. Do you ever have to sit down when you got bad news? Right? Uh, I have family members, aunts and uncles, you know, whenever they, whenever we got bad news, my mom, whenever we got bad news, he says, sit down, I've got to tell you something. Oh, no, who died? That's the first thing you say, because that's what we were told. The next thing he does is, you know, before sitting down, he weeps. And we all can understand that. Our Lord wept at the tomb of Lazarus. So we can all understand what that's about. He also mourns for several days. He fasts. He prays. You know, you look at these things combined, it's probably a good example for us to follow, especially when we can couple uh, weeping and mourning with fasting and praying. Um, so he's brought low. He's, he's, he's brought rather low because um, this was Jerusalem. This is the place where God himself had put his name. And this was the center of temple worship. And so he's, he's kind of brought low. But I can't help but think, you know, especially after we go through the book of Nehemiah, you'll find out he's brought low, but then there's a, something special coming on. Sometimes we're brought low before the Lord has a work for us uh, and blesses us. And, but he's, and you'll find through this, he's a man of prayer completely. Here's his first prayer. There's, he, uh, and even in the last chapter, there's a prayer. He, he says, remember me with favor, oh my God. He prays day and night. And if you look at the contents of that prayer, it's, it's a wonderful prayer. Because he says that he calls him first a God. The, uh, God is the great and awesome God. You know, if you can't say that, chances are he's not your God. He reminds him of his covenant. Not that God needs reminding. God is omniscient. He knows everything. He doesn't forget anything. But I think it was more of a reminder to Nehemiah who God was, the God of this, the, the covenant. And that was a promise. And, and, of course, his promise was to arrange his providences for the welfare of those who should render him obedience. Israel wasn't obedient. They, that's why they were sent into captivity. And of course, he is, he, but God has not forgot his promises. He also confesses the sins of Israel as if they're his own. Now, as far as Nehemiah is concerned, he, he did nothing to deserve to be put into captivity. He was born into captivity. And he could have easily said, you know what? I wasn't apathetic toward your, your commands, oh, Lord. I wasn't apathetic to the laws. Um, you know, these sins are those who committed sins 90 years ago. Uh, I was in Persia. I had nothing to do with this. But he doesn't do that. He confesses his sins. He confesses his sins as if they're his own. And on behalf of the 
of the remnant and the Jewish people, if you will. And I thought that was interesting because he kind of looks at himself as part of the fabric of the entire history of Israel. That's some prayer when you think about it. So this will just give you an idea of as far as how he prays. And again, keeping in, in, the, in mind the thought, God could do anything with anyone, especially those who have a heart for God, who love God's people, and of course, who have the things for God. Um, we can observe that he already has a heart for God and for God's people and for the things of God. And at the end, of course, he's very specific about his prayer. He calls him my, he says, your servant. This is a prayer of availability. He's he's looking for opportunity, how I can do something. Um, He wasn't saying, you know what? Someone else will take care of those walls and those those gates. He wasn't saying that. He is asking. He is asking. And he's he's praying first before his plan, if you will, goes into place. Someone said, while we wait on God, we pray to God. Prayer should always precede working for God. And so... He's placing the responsibility of this massive project, if you will, on his shoulders, squarely on his shoulders. And then we get to chapter two. And chapter two is actually three sections. You can see Nehemiah and the king and the first eight verses, Nehemiah and the ruins and the next eight. Uh, and then, of course, uh, he has uh, some verses with talking with the Jews in verses 17 through 20. So now we have to fast forward. It's four months later. And it's, a, it's the month of Nisan. It's not Nissan. I looked it up. Nissan is a car. All right. It's Nissan. Uh, it's mid-March to mid-April. Four months have passed. He's still waiting on God for an opportunity to approach the king because he has a request. He needs the king to grant him a great favor as his cupbearer. And as his cupbearer, most assuredly, he would have access to the king. Not everybody does. And uh, he's built up some credibility here because of his honest and trustworthy service to the king. He's proven himself as the first, uh, one of the last lines of defense for the king. But God had laid on his heart a plan, and he's about to bring that plan, and now is the time. Notice that he says here, I've never been sad before. Uh, Why? Why did he say that? He said that because it was dangerous to be working in the king's palace with sadness on your face because sadness would be taken as, uh, it would be suspicious. You couldn't have a gloomy disposition. Then the king would say, and those around would say, ah, something's up. A possible assassination attempt is is occurring and you might be part of it. You might remember in King Nebuchadnezzar's time, more than one cupbearer lost more than their position as cupbearer because they had sadness on their face. Uh, they lost more than that. They lost their heads. So this was um, this was something he, he makes a point of saying. And he's straightforward. He's honest. That's who Nehemiah is. But as the Bible tells us in verse 3, he's scared. He's scared. And look what he does. He says something before that. Before he brings this request, what does he say? May the king live forever. Uh, Chuck Swindoll had the great line about this. He said, Nehemiah may have added a me too in the back of his head when he was saying that to the king. Um, So the king asked, what do you want? And before he does, what does he do? He's a man of prayer, right? He goes to the Lord. He says, then I pray to the God of heaven. Uh, It's the swift uplook of faith, A.P. Gibbs called it. It's a very short prayer. It's one of those you ever, you ever have those short prayers? You know, you know, it could be for anything. It's one of those SOS prayers you send up every now and then. And, you know, and speaking about prayer, you know, it's sometimes it's not the length of the prayer, but it's the strength of the prayer, and the heart of the prayer. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? Do not be as the Pharisees who stand on the corners with their long prayers. They think um, they'll be heard because of their many words. He didn't have time for many words. And as a man of prayer, what does he do? Before really going, even though he's in the presence of the king, before going to the throne of our exercises, he goes to the throne of grace first. He goes to God first. And that's uh, something that for our own selves, if you will. Um, the other thing is this. He's asking, he's going to ask to leave 
um, this palace. And then we'll find out, what is he going for? He's going to, to be actually be almost like a foreman on a construction site. When you think about it, you couldn't get farther away, you know, from the prim and proper and then maybe the, the cleanliness and the royalty and all the pageantry to a construction site. I don't know if you've ever been on one, but they're pretty dirty. But let's look a little deeper. He was willing to leave this and all this behind to work for a greater king. And sometimes God asks us to get out of our comfort zones, does he not sometimes? You know, he makes us do things we never thought we can do, but only through his power, if you will. As I said, the king had, he built up a lot of credibility, king. Look at he, look at he asks, how long, will you, how long will, uh, to get there? And when will you be back? Uh, he didn't even leave and he's already having him back. You know, I used to drag Arminda to certain things, functions when I was a principal sometimes, and she didn't even know anybody. But, you know, it was important that as the principal, I bring my wife, et cetera. And, you know, we're in the car. And before we're even there, she's going, what time are we leaving? Well, this is kind of that. She's, you know, I'm telling the truth, hon. Uh, it's my birthday. I wouldn't lie. This is, <laughs> How long would it be? It would actually be 12 years before he comes back. And then, of course, we saw he got the letters. He, first, he's got permission to go. And then he gets these letters. These are like passports so he can travel throughout that trans-Euphrates area without any issues or problems. It's kind of a safety net there. And then he asked, he, you know, he's very bold here. He asked ASAP. He, I need a letter to ASAP. He's got all the lumber. He's got all the lumber. I need it for the rebuilding, for this monumental project. And the king grants it. He grants it. God's hand is in this plan. And why? Because look, verse 8, and verse 2, verse, chapter 2, verse 8, and because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. A um, couple of things. Nehemiah had a personal relationship with the king. He wouldn't have been able to make these requests if he didn't know him personally. And you can't help but think, you know what, we need a personal relationship with, our, with the king. That's King Jesus. And that begins with acknowledgement of sins, repenting of our sins, uh, putting our full faith and trust in what he did on the cross for our eternal salvation. Because sin has torn us down and so the walls are down in our lives. But the Lord Jesus did and can and did make the repair that was needed uh, because of the wall of sin, how, how much damage it's caused to all of us. And the second thing is this. We do nothing without the hand of God upon us. Everything we have our skills, our intellect, our talents. I don't care what you have. Ultimately, it comes from God. And if we run the risk, and it's a danger of keeping God out of our plans and our decision-making, not going to him first, we shouldn't be surprised when it comes down like those walls. Psalm 127.1, lest the Lord build a house, they, they labor in vain to build it. So we can do nothing unless the hand of God is upon us. These next few verses, we're fast-forwarding again. Now it's three months later. He's made the trip to Jerusalem, about 900 miles. And on top of which, which I love, he gets a military escort of officers and cavalry. He never even asked for it. The king, I said, well, wow, the king must have really liked him. He must be really important. But then the second thing I thought about, you know, God provides for our needs sometimes above and beyond, even if we don't ask. Um, and so the rebuilding of the walls will take place, but not everybody's happy. You see in verse 10, we see these rich power brokers who came into power, if you will, at the expense of Jerusalem being in ruins when the Jews were in captivity. We see the forerunners of the Samaritans. Uh, Son, we're introduced to Sambalat, the governor of Samaria, and Tobiah, the Ammonite. Uh, they're upset, but uh, their apple cart is about to be upset. Uh, they just don't know it yet. So after this three-month trip, he arrives in Jerusalem. It seems like he rests for three days, probably to renew his strength, maybe to become acquainted with some of the, uh, some of the remnant there, maybe just to settle in. But three days later, he's on the move. He's a man of action. And he goes out on a night, I call it a nighttime reconnaissance mission. Um, you know the State Farm jingle, right? Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Well, like a good neighbor, Nehemiah is there. He's actually, I, I look at him as an insurance adjuster looking over the damage, if you will. 
he's there. And as a leader, uh, he personally wanted to see it. He heard about the ruins and he took their word for it, obviously, but he wants to see it firsthand. He wants to know what he's up against. And so he has this secretive surveying of the ruins. He goes out at night with only a few men. He's the only one on a mount, probably a donkey. And he looks firsthand. And look what he does. He starts at the valley gate and he starts to examine the walls. Take a look at that word examine. In some translation, it says viewed. If you think of the word picture of a doctor examining an injury um, to determine its extent and then to make a diagnosis of the damages incurred, you might, you might get a better understanding of it. At least I, I, I do. And so here he is. And at one point, he has to dismount. The rubble and the debris is so high, the rest of the inspection has to go on foot. And so he needs, um, he needs his, you know, the, an exact, I, I wrote this down in my notes, I said, an exact detailed repair of the damage that was needed for the survival of Jerusalem. It really was. And he tells no one, not the priests, not even the people he's with, not the remnant, not the nobles. You know, beloved, when you think about it, God has surveyed the damage in our lives. And uh, he has seen the rubble and he made an exact diagnosis. And at one time, our eternal life looked rather bleak, but he sent a cure. He sent his son. And he's a, his one and only son who, could, who saved us and allows us to live with him forever. See, the walls of our lives can be repaired. It can be made whole. It could be secure. It could be safe. We could be at peace. And one day we'll, we'll, that'll happen because we're going to be in the new Jerusalem, Revelation 21. Finally, at the end of this chapter, we see uh, his dialogue with the Jews. I, I call it the state of the city address. You know, the state of the state, state of the union, state of the city address. He's about to, to talk to the, his fellow remnant about the state of Jerusalem. And he gives an honest appraisal. There's no spin here. You've seen enough state of the union, governor, whatever, you know, and everything's great. We're doing fine. Everything's wonderful, you know, and maybe it may not be, but he gave an honest appraisal. We're not doing well. Jerusalem is a disgrace. We're a reproach. We are in shame. We, uh, the city of God has brought shame on us, but more importantly, it has brought shame on the name of the living God. And so what does he say? This is where he has these wonderful leadership skills. You know, a leader sometimes is, it has, to, has to morale the troops, uh, is in charge of the morale of the troops, the morale of the people that you are uh, supervising. And that's what he does. He says, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. He rallies the people. He motivates them. And in verse 18, he tells them why. Um, we need this great work. He says, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God and what the king said to me. This is a real jolt of confidence to the people who are hearing this. Nehemiah is an inspired leader who inspires the remnant. And what do they do? They say, let us rise up and build. And they began this good work. I love what it says in the King James verse, Version. I just love the way it says it. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. This wasn't a one-man operation, if you will, a one-person operation. He challenges the, the, the remnant to work with him not for him, with him, with the assurance that God had his blessing upon them. And how could such a work fail if God's hand is in it? Who could stop? Basically what he's saying, who could stop us from returning the glory that we had to Jerusalem? No one. And so now the hard hats are on, the shovels are out, the pickaxes are there, and it's time to work. But you can predict, even if you did not read this section, what happens next? Here comes the opposition. Whenever there's a good work for the Lord that needs to be done, you can expect opposition from the devil and his minions. And his minions are in the form of this evil triumvirate of Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab. And they start with the verbal assaults and the verbal ridicule. You know, you know ironically, these three don't have anything in common with each other, really, if you look it up, except for one thing. They hate the Jews. It's a maniacal hatred of the Jews. And I'm thinking 25 years later, 100 years later, has anything really changed? You take, it, take a look at the map of Israel and where they are and surrounded by the countries. Every one of those countries is going to blow them off the face of the earth. 
Nothing has changed, but God's hand is on Israel. We get the last laugh. But here's the first onslaught, onslaught, and here's the first salvo. And that the strong leader that he is, he is not intimidated. He is not intimidated at all. And he tells him such. And he tells him verse 20, to me, it's rather bluntly. You three have no portion, no right, no memorial, no share, no claim, not even an historic right to be here. Now, he didn't say it, boy, I did. I said, it, you know, the old down neck Rocco Colucci way of saying it the way, you know, that's what you, but that you can imagine what he was trying to say. And so he knew where he stood with God. And because he, he was, he knew, he knows where he stands with God. He can absorb that ridicule and the threat and attack. None of that's going to move him. You know, likewise, if you're a child of God, you can resist the devil. God's help and the hope of the Holy Spirit. You can withstand opposition, and we can build for the kingdom. That's what Nehemiah is doing here. Um, we have a few minutes. Uh, we can't get through the reading of chapter 3, but I'll just give you an overview of chapter 3. Um, God bless Paul Hagen, Dr. Hagen, who read every single difficult name a couple of weeks ago in the book of uh, Ezra. I went through every one of those names that are here, and um, they're, they're, it's, it's a challenge. If you can't, uh, by the way, there is an app you can go to for pronunciations of biblical names, and it, it will help you. And uh, it takes time. Uh, but in this case, there was over 42 work groups here. So it will take you a, l- a little while to get through every single correct pronunciation. And as I heard one person say, uh, he said, you know, when we get to heaven, we're going to have to apologize to every one of these people we mispronounced. You know, but in chapter three, Zerubbabel and Jeshua led about uh, 50,000 exiles from Babylon to Jerusalem for the purpose of rebuilding the temple. Now, I'm sure when that happened, there was a lot of enthusiasm. And guess what? There's a new enthusiasm now under Nehemiah, who's um, is the mission of fortifying the city, the rebuilding of the walls and the gates. And so that the nation would be protected and they would not fall back into idol worship and intermarrying with maybe unbelieving pagans, etc. All the things that got them sent into the uh, into captivity in the first place. Now, the rebuilding of the walls, and I, uh, Dan, I don't know if you can show the people back at home. There's uh, that little picture of modern day. Yeah, that's it. The city walls during Nehemiah's time. It's, I wish you could see it. It's an aerial view of modern day Jerusalem with the walls, with the wall around the, where the Temple Mount is, the Pool, the pool of Siloam. Uh, the Gion Spring, uh, Hezekiah's water tunnel, everything. I wish you could have seen it. Um, but, you know, this is like about a two-mile enclosure with about, it's in about 90 or 100 acres. Uh, you know, how is this going to be accomplished? Uh, I found a quote from the, uh, a, a late minister. His name was Samuel Chadwick. And he said, by a man who was intensely spiritual, perfectly natural, and thoroughly practical. That's Nehemiah. That's who's going to do it. And his organizational skills as a leader are on full display here in chapter three. I, I, I encourage you to read it. Now, you understand they're going to build around these walls. They're going to reconstruct this, if you will. Um, there are no John Deere trucks and things. And there's not, you know, those big caterpillars, you know, the 10-foot wall uh, wheels and things like that. There are no earth movers there. There's no uh, cranes or jackhammers. This is going to be hard work. This is how it's it's going to be done. Man and woman power. Yes, there were women on the wall that were building. Um, He's a man of action. And what he does is he delegates um, to certain groups and individuals a place on the wall so they can they can they can work on it or a particular gate. And as I said, there's like like over 42 groups of these workers. You know, it reminds us the Holy Spirit has given each of us in the body of Christ um, certain gifts and talents and skills for building up of the church and the edification of the church. And each of us can um, can contribute. Warren Wiersbe said, "No one could do everything, but everybody could do something." And, um, and so he does this. There's a cross-section of people in chapter 3, if you take a look. A lot of occupations and roles. For some, this is not their station in life. This is not their usual um, 
work, if you will. Um, you know, Dr. Hagen's a dentist. It would be something like that. Uh, Mike was in sanitation. He might be, we'll put him on the dung wall. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I was thinking about some of the things that go on, you know, some of, some of, the, some of these people who are there, um, the priests are the first name. The priests are going to work. And the first one to respond is Eliashib. He's the high priest. You know who he was? He was the grandson of Zerubbabel, who led the first wave of exiles from Babylon. And he's gone. Here's an important gate. I wish we could get through all these 10 gates. I, I told Alan, I said, so many messages here, so many good things. The first, and maybe the people at home could see those gates, uh, Dan. The, yeah, there they are. That's the, that's, that's the gates that are going to be repaired. The first gate is the sheep gate. It's located near the temple. It's where the sacrificial animals were brought in to be sacrificed on the altar. That's where it all began. And that's a picture of the cross. That's where it all began for us. Uh, It begins there, and then it comes full circle. Uh, Because Christ was our Passover lamb. He was a lamb led to the slaughter, sacrificed for our sins. That's where it started. A couple of very important things I found out. Number one. That sheep gate, when Jesus was arrested, you know, I can't wrap my head around it sometimes. Jesus got arrested, you know. You think about it, just, just mind-boggling to me. When he was arrested, he was led through that sheep gate. And when it was time for the crucifixion, he was led out of that sheep gate, uh, that very sheep gate. And the second thing is this. There were no bars on that gate, nothing to lock it. And it's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. As the door. The door is always open to any and all sinners. It's a special gate. It's a sanctified gate. It's set apart. If you go through chapter three and you read all those names, I mean, there were rulers that worked on the wall, verses uh, 12 through 19. Women, verse 12. Goldsmiths, perfumers, and merchants. Merchants, this is a different line of work for them altogether. The perfumers, they're working with plants and, and, and ointments and things of that nature. It's delicate stuff sometimes. You know, think about it. They're going to be hauling bricks. Their hands are going to be filled with calluses and blisters. But they were there. And, of course, the goldsmiths. Uh, Jews from surrounding cities, verses 2, 5, and 7. Workers at nearby homes, verses 10 and 23, 28 to 30. Individuals with only one representative from their family are working on the walls and the gates. Those who were... Uh, who worked uh, maybe a little bit more earnestly or zealously were there, even a former backslider in verse 11. Um, the thing I found out about this, God is not, you know, God's not limited by what we do when we could do something for him. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what walk of life you're from. You have a heart for God, for the people of God and the things of God, God could work through you. And of course, there's always the naysayers, the the Kotites, in verse 5, if you look at that up, um, some of the nobles refused to work. They did not work, and it's rather sad when you think about that. So what happened? Some people took on the extra work. See, God's plan is never, that tells me God's plan can never be thwarted, ever. If you don't want to do it, someone else will pick it up. God will find someone. And it's important to know that, you know, Nehemiah list, listed all these people in that book because it's important that they be recognized for what they have done. And yet Nehemiah never writes that I did this and I did that. And I, 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 he's not even, he doesn't write about himself in that book. He gives it to everybody else. Again, true character of a man of God. The lesson for us, God's praise when the noble lives of saints, of the noble saints before us, they're an example for us to follow. Loyal service of the past serves as an inspiration for the present. Uh, I encourage you to read the uh, chapter three and take every single um, gate. Every one of those is a spiritual. Um, oh, okay. Cause I was going to put our, um, how long do they take? Are you coming home soon? Uh, if you take a look at it, Dan, for the people at home. That's- um, if there's someone, I'm going to put the Popeye in, but I'll do it after you're done. Is this my birthday party? And I don't know. Okay. It's a surprise. Wow. <laughs> wow gee i'm flattered okay um let's end with this it, it's, it's time um two things god could do anything through anyone as i said who has a, a heart for god 
the things of God, the people of God. Uh, the Bible is filled with some ordinary people doing extraordinary things. I mean, you go from A to Z. You go from Abraham to Zechariah. You go through the annals of church history, and you can take our own TRBC history, uh, and you think about what so many people accomplished for the Lord. You know, in our own TBC history, I was thinking, you know, we speak with reverence and fondness of those who are now with the Lord and what they've left us. Um, all we have to do is say basically what Nehemiah said, you know, Lord, send me, send me. Uh, whatever we do in word or deed, we do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We give him thanks through, uh, through him to God the Father. And the second thing is God wants to rebuild the walls of our lives. And like the ruins and the rubble of Jerusalem, they're down, the gates are down. You know, when, that's what happens when sin dominates the life of a person. And we can all speak from experience. I stand in and tell you, uh, I'm, I'm really good at sinning sometimes. You know, really good. And you know what? Let me speak to those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe we're zooming in or maybe be, be here. He can re- God can rebuild those walls. We have to acknowledge the fact that we're in a lost condition and we're broken down. And when we acknowledge that, God can forgive us of sin. All you have to do is acknowledge it and confess it. Every sin that you've done, every wrong that you've done can be forgiven. Everything. And he'll give you a new start in life. You know, we talk about, you know, if uh, anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. The old things pass away and the whole old things become new. That starts at the cross. And then you have peace with God and you know you'll be in heaven with him one day. For he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. And for those who are Christians, who have been born again for many years, who have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, what about the walls in our lives? Maybe they need a little repairing here and there or rebuilding. Maybe the walls aren't completely down, but there's a crack here and a crack there. Uh, A little stone is missing there. Um, Perhaps there's a gaping hole in our testimony, in our commitment in our personal relationships, our marriages, our jobs, or life in general. Let God rebuild. Let God repair and be recommitted as true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Our most gracious God and Father, again, we give thee thanks for the privilege of calling thee our Father. We thank you that um, you loved us so much that you sent your dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf. And by so doing, you give us a place in heaven. Your word tells us that uh, in your house are many mansions. And if it were not so, you would have told us. As the Lord Jesus said, and there I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you may be also. We cling to those words oftentimes, Lord, and we're so grateful for that and for the promises you have made. And Father, too, I just uh, pray for those who don't know you, who have heard this message today, whose walls are down completely and need rebuilding. I pray that they would uh, turn their hearts over to the Lord Jesus Christ and have a new life with him and forever be saved. And then, Father, we pray for the balance of this day and we pray for those here and uh, for traveling mercies to our homes. We thank you. We pray this all in the Savior's name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The extra minutes. I appreciate it.